Hello, this is from Ideology to Unity, a spiritual journey where we let go of ideological doctrine and ego in favor of meaning, purpose, and unity as a whole. All right, so just by myself again, I've done an interview already today and yesterday. This is the, um, the 18th. And so I should be uploading all of them, including this one today. But because I'm still feeling like, well, I'm feeling like recording right now. So that's what I'm doing. So, yeah. Um, okay, then. Uh, there was something I want to say. I can't remember what it is. So without further ado, I'm doing a more another episode of a reading of Synchronicity, an E-Causal Connecting Principle by Carl Gustav Jung. Notes will be in no the details about the uh, you know the publisher and stuff will be in the details. And without further ado, I'm going to get on with it. So, <clears throat> where were we? So, it was about the Ryan experiments and about how across time and space there um. ESP seems to apply across time and space. Um, well, and for reasons I went to, you know, I'm sure that's pretty fascinating, and that seems to link into the law one, and certain other insight, uh, certain other things. Not that Jung was aware of it, or I don't think he was aware of the law one. I'm pretty sure he wasn't, uh, especially given that the law of one was actually later than he died. So, yeah. Um, especially given that. Right, so, where was I? There was yet another psychological analogy between my two cases and the Ryan experiments, though it is not quite so obvious. These apparently quite different situations have as their common characteristic an element of impossibility in the commas. The patient with the scarab found herself in an impossible situation because of the treatment had got stuck and there seemed to be no way out of the impasse. All right, so I just skipped a, uh, a footnote there. Oh, it's about statistical analysis designed to separate out um, stuff. I mentioned that last time. In such situations, if they are serious enough, archetypal dreams are likely to occur, which point out a possible line of advance one would never have thought of oneself. It is in this kind of situation that constellate. It is this kind of constellate situation that constellates the archetype with the greatest regularity. In certain cases, the psychotherapist therefore sees himself obligated to discover the rationally insoluble problem towards which the patient's unconscious is steering. You know, I'm thinking about this idea. Um, you know, in our mass RPGs and stuff, like especially um, mass multiplayer RPGs, so you're playing this game and you decide as a player that you want to do a special ability 
that's going to maybe get a character out of a fix. Uh, you press a certain hotkey, like five or something, and it does some move, or for six, it does something else, and you did these certain things. And these, it might be a passive ability, it might be a combative one, it might be a non-combative ability. But essentially, it is a special ability that does different stuff where your character does different stuff or different stuff happens to your character or for your character. Now, in life, the I suspect, I've got this idea that the collective unconscious, the archetypes of the collective unconscious, when they come into, take hold of you, possess you, let's say, or when they play a role and when there's a synchronicity, that seems linked to archetypes of the collective unconscious, like, well, any of them really. And like, for example, the thing with the scarab beetle thing that was mentioned in the book. If when things like that happen, it's basically, it's almost like the higher self or the, the player aspect of you is deciding to give you an extra uh, using an ability like in a game to give you a pointer or extra information or an, another avenue that you wouldn't otherwise have because we are playing ourselves in life and we are playing a game of life and we are experiencing the game of life as if we are experiencing it when we're not although we are and if that sounds contradictory uh it is and it isn't right <laughs> okay so yeah so I, I feel like there's a conscious purpose to this and that the collective unconscious either it happens on the collective level and then there's a conscious mind directing archetypes at people for their benefit collectively. You could say maybe it's Gaia or something, though I don't think so. Or perhaps alternatively, it's each person's, you see each person, according to David Wilcock, they, they put their, and the law of one, they basically put their a lot of their soul energy into incarnations. Usually just one, not necessarily though. And, but a portion of it remains in the spirit world, right? Whatever you call that world. And you're basically watching yourself in a sense and interacting with yourself from above. And in, life we don't experience this aspect of things and we're not meant to or at least not in third density fourth density is a bit more a bit more interactive i don't know we're going to find out shortly by shortly i mean in a few days although it might not be all at once like we don't know how it's going to go right more like a mass awakening anyway. Not some uh, 
cataclysmic event per se. Although it depends, like whatever, I'm digressing. So anyway, about that unconscious steering when there's an impossible vertical situation, that steering is done by whatever conscious means it's done. Once this is found, the deeper layers of the unconscious, the primordial images are activated and the transformation of the personality can get underway. Interesting, interesting. And in the second case, there was the half unconscious fear and the threat of a lethal, lethal end with no possibility of, in, of an adequate recognition of the situation. In the Rhine experiment, it is the impossibility of the task that ultimately fixes the subject's attention on the processes going on inside of him and thus gives the unconscious a chance to manifest itself. The questions set by the ESP experiment have an emotional effect right, down, right from the start, since they postulate something unknowable as being potentially knowable, in that way the possibility of a miracle seriously into account. And in that way take the possibility of that into account. This, regardless of the subject's skepticism, immediately appeals to his unconscious readiness to witness a miracle, and to the hope, latent in all men, that such a thing may yet be possible. Primitive su superstition lies just below the surface of even the most tough-minded individuals, and it is precisely those who fight against it. It is precisely those who most fight against it who are the first to succumb to suggestive effects. That's because of the shadow, and the more intensely something is denied. entrance from ego identity if something is the, the more strongly you deny something as being you your identity the more firmly it is in the shadow aspect of you according to you in psychology when therefore a serious experiment with all the authority of science behind it touches this resinous it will inevitably give rise to an emotion which either accepts or rejects it with a good deal of affectivity so naturally this would be like well that's amazing or, no 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 way no 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 in freud's case it was the latter because when jung actually jung mentioned <laughs> There was this funny story of, um, it's kind of undermined, led to the beginning of the end of their friendship. When Jung was mentioning certain things, he'd, certain evidence or certain indications he'd come across of, I don't know precisely, but something that doesn't fit within conventional materialism, like ESP evidence for ESP or something like that. And, Freud was emphatically dismissive of it in quite in a way that although Jung put it quite indirectly essentially Jung felt an egoic reaction that's something I got from that that Jung was tempted actually to snap at Freud because Freud was so rude and dismissive to him about it and Jung didn't snap at him though. He humorously suggested that there was going to be 
a loud knock or something from my cupboard, just just in the room. And no, it would be funny if that actually happens. One, <laughs> um, it was. It was. He said that, that would. There's going to be a loud knock, and in a few seconds, and there was. In fact, it was so loud that the what happened is that him and Freud were worried that it was actually going to fall over onto them. It didn't, but Freud was spooked by it. He was not happy about that. Like he did not have an explanation for it. No, I, I, I don't know this. I'm just kind of saying what comes to me about it. Yeah, I've heard certain things and I'm kind of filling in the gaps with my intuition. So Freud was not happy about that. He couldn't account for it, but couldn't accept it. And yet couldn't deny experienced it. And so I sense that on some level, he resented Jung for it. He feared what it meant, but couldn't accept his own fear. And that fear festered. And that was one of the main things on the friendship. And the more Jung diverged from his philosophy of psychology, the more that gulf grew. And uh, yeah, back to the subject at hand. At all, at all events, an, an effective expectation is present in one form or another, even though it may be denied. Here I would like to call attention to a possible misunderstanding, which may be occasioned by the term synchronicity. I chose this term because of the simultaneous occurrence of two meaningfully but not causally connected events. Seemed to me, because, because that seemed to me to be an essential criterion. I am therefore using the general concept of synchronicity in the special sense of a coincidence in time of two or more causally unrelated events which have the same or similar meaning in contrast to synchronism which simply means simultaneous occurrence of two events. Ah, that, that's reasonable, that's reasonable. That's an important distinction to make though. Synchronicity, therefore, means a simultaneous occurrence of a certain psychic state with one or more external events which appear as meaningful parallels to the momentary subjective state and, in certain cases, vice versa. My two examples illustrate this in different ways. In the case of the scarab, the simultaneity is immediately obvious, but not in the second example. It is true that the flock of birds occasioned a vague fear, but that can be explained causally. The wife of my patient was certainly not conscious beforehand of any fear that could be compared with my own apprehensions, for the symptoms, pain, pains in the throat, were not of a kind to make 
the layman suspect anything bad. The unconscious, however, often knows more than the conscious. And certainly the right brain and left brain are not necessarily entirely the same thing as conscious and unconscious. The unconscious, however, often knows more than the conscious. And it seems to me possible that the woman's unconscious had already got wind of the danger. If, therefore, we rule out a conscious psychic content, such as the idea of deadly danger, there is an obvious simultaneity between the flock of birds in its tran traditional meaning and the death of the husband. The psychic state, if we disregard the possible, but still not demonstrable excitation of the unconscious, appears to be dependent on the external event. The woman's psyche is nevertheless involved insofar as the bird settled on the house and were observed by her. For this reason, it seemed to me probable that the unconscious was in fact constellated, that her unconscious was in fact constellated. The flock of birds has, as such, a traditional mantic significance. Footnote, a literary example is The Cranes of Ibiscus, a poem by Scylla 1798, inspired by the story of the Greek poet murdered by robbers who were brought to justice by cranes who saw the crime. Simultane similarly, when the flock of chattering magpies settles on a house, it is supposedly it's supposed to mean death, and so on. Also, the significance of auguries. Auguries being uh, when they sacrificed animals to see who was going to win a battle beforehand, or if it was a favorable situation for it and stuff. Um, I think that's so, anyway. So, this is also apparent in the woman's own interpretation. And it therefore looks as if the birds represented an unconscious premonition of death. The physicians of the Romantic age would probably have talked of sympathy and magnetism. But as I've said, such phenomena cannot be explained causally unless one permits oneself the most fantastic ad hoc hypotheses. The inter interpretation of the birds is an omen, as we have seen based on two earlier coincidences of a similar kind. It did not yet exist at the time of the grandmother's death. There, the coincidence was represented only by the death and the gathering of birds. Both then, and at the mother's death, the coincidence was obvious, but in the third kind, it could only be verified when the dying man was brought into the house. I mention in these complications, I mentioned these complications because they have an important bearing on the concept of synchronicity. Let us take another example. An acquaintance of mine saw and experienced in a dream the sudden death of a friend with all the characteristic details. The dreamer was in Europe at the time and the friend in America. The death was confirmed the next morning by telegram and 10 days later, a letter confirmed the details. Comparison of European time with American time showed that the death occurred within at least an hour occurred at least an hour before the dream. The dreamer had gone to bed late and not slept until one o'clock. The dream occurred at approximately two in the morning. The dream experience is not synchronous with the death. Experiences of this kind frequently take place a little before or after the critical event. J.W. Dunn, but note, an experiment with time, second edition, New York, 1938, page 34, 
mentions particularly a particularly instructive dream where he had in the spring of 1902 when serving in the Boer War. He seemed to be standing on a volcanic mountain. It was an island which he had dreamt about before and knew was threatened by a catastrophic volcanic eruption like Krakatoa. Terrified, he wanted to save 4,000 inhabitants. He tried to get the French officials of, on the neighboring island to mobilize all available shipping for the rescue work. Here, the dream began to develop a typical nightmare motifs of hurrying, chasing, and not arriving on time. And all the while there hovered before his mind the words, 4,000 people will be killed unless... A few days later, Dunn received in his mail a copy of the Daily Telegraph, and as I'd, I fell upon the following headlines. Volcano, volcano disaster in Martinique. Volcano, town swept away. An avalanche of flame. Probable loss of over 40,000 lives. Huh. The dream did not take place at the moment of the actual catastrophe, but only when the paper was on its way to him with the news. While reading it, he, mis he misread 40,000 as 4,000. The mistake became fixed as a paramnesia, so that whenever he told the dream, he invariably said 4,000 instead of 40,000. Not until 15 years later, when he copied out the article, did he discover his mistake. His unconscious knowledge had made the same mistake in reading as himself. The fact that he dreamt this shortly before the news reached him is something that happens fairly frequently. We often dream about people from whom we receive a letter by the next post. We have ascertained on several occasions that at a moment when the dream occurred, the letter was already lying in the post office of the addressee. I can also confirm from my own experience, the reading mistake. During the Christmas of 1918, I was much occupied with orphism and, the particular, and in particular with the Orphic fragment of Malaya's where the primordial light is described as the Trinitarian Metis, Fainas Erisophagus. I consistently read Erisophagus instead of Erisophagus. That was an A rather than an E. So it was an E, he read it as an A. As in the text, actually both readings occur. This misreading became fixed as a paramnesia. And later I also remembered the name Erykapeus and only and only discovered 30 years afterwards that Malala's text has Erysipeus. Just at this time, one of my patients who had not seen for a month and who I knew nothing of my studies had a dream in which an unknown man handed her a piece of paper, and on, on it was written a Latin hymn to a god named Erisopeus. The dream was able, the dreamer was able to write this hymn down upon waking. The language was written in a peculiar mixture of Latin, French, and Italian. The lady had an elementary knowledge of Latin, knew a little knew a bit more Italian, and spoke French fluently. The name Erisopeus was completely unknown to her, which is not surprising as she had no knowledge of the classics. Our two towns were about 50 miles apart 
and there had been no communication between us for a month. Oddly enough, the variant of the name affected the very same vowel which I had misread, A instead of E, but her unconscious misread it another way, I instead of E. I can only suppose that she unconsciously read, not my mistake, but the text in which the Latin transliteration Arisipeus occurs and was evidently put off her stroke by my misreading. Huh. So it seems to link there where it's the bowels that matter. Not, well, uh, he used it a bit better. Synchronistic events rest on the simultaneous occurrence of two different psychic states. One of them is the normal probable state, i.e. the one that is causally explicable, and the other, the critical experience, is the one that cannot be derived causally from the first. In the case of the sudden death, the critical experience cannot be recognized immediately as extrasensory perception, but can only be verified as such afterwards. Yet, even in the case of the scarab, which is immediately experienced one is immediately experienced is a psychic state or psychic image which differs from the dream image only because it can be verified immediately. In the case of the flock of birds, there was in the woman an unconscious excitation or fear, which was certainly conscious to me and caused me to send the patient into a, to a heart specialist. In these cases, whether it is a question of spatial or temporal ESP, we find a simultaneity of the normal and ordinary state with another state or experience which is not causally derivable from it and whose objective existence can only be verified afterwards. This definition must be borne in mind, particularly when it is a question of future events. They are evidently not synchronous, but they are synchronistic since they are experienced as psychic images in the presence, as though the objective event already existed. Well. Perhaps it did, right? An unexpected content, which is directly or indirectly connected with some objective inter external event coincides with the ordinary psychic state. This is what I call synchronicity. And I maintain that we are dealing with exactly the same category of events, whether their objectivity appears separated from my consciousness in time or in space. Well, I said that the wrong way around, but yeah. This view is confirmed by Ryan's results insofar as they are not influenced by changes in space and time. Space and time, the conceptual coordinates of bodies in motion, are prob probably at bottom one and the same, which is why we speak of long or sh of a long and short space of time. And the philo Judaeus said a long ago that the extension of the heavenly motion is time. Synchronicity in space can equally well, be conceived as perception in time. But remarkably enough, it is not so easy to understand synchronicity in time as spatial, for we cannot imagine any space in which the future events are objectively present and could be experienced as such through a reduction of the spatial distance. Well, if you imagine time as like a shape. Let's say, let's say 
right? Think of knitting, right? So there's this old lady knitting and she's knitting um, a sock. Now that sock is multi-dimensional space-time, at least five-dimensional, right? Let us just go with three dimensions plus time, right? And so time being the fourth dimension. So if you imagine, imagine instead of, we typically, we imagine a fourth dimension being time, temporal, right? But imagine if we convert, in a sense, that temporal dimension into a spatial representation. In other words, we imagine that lady, that old lady knitting time. I mean, there's interesting enough though, these are, there's this thing from uh, Greek mythology about these three women who create everything in time. But anyway, that, that's an interesting synchronicity perhaps. But there's this, this old lady, she's knitting a sock and So she's knitted a large portion of it already, right? So there's a sock coming out. Wait, I'm not trying to represent that. I, I, I tell you what, I can actually draw this. If you're listening to this, I guess it's gonna be a bit harder to explain, but. So there's a sock. Oh my God, this is gonna look, this is gonna look phallic, isn't it? Oh. I'm not sure I'm going to do that then. Okay, right. So there's a sock and it's like a fabric, right? And it's being knitted. And it's got a shape to it. And that shape, the further down the sock you go, that's the further down in time. And it's got a shape to it, right? But it's time. Now, the two-dimensional shape of it the cross section two-dimensionally, think of that as 3D space. But that cross section changes as you go down the sock and the shape of the sock as you go down as a whole, that is the interaction of four dimensions, the fourth dimension with the third dimension, right? Now, but imagine that as she's going, she keeps changing her mind about different strands. So she takes certain strands out and, and um, knits a different strand in, right? Different color in. And so we could call it a sock. We could call it anything. What, it, what she's, this old lady is always knitting, always knitting. And she keeps changing the overall thing she's knitting, which never is complete. And so there's a shape to time and it's constantly being rewritten. Every moment of time is effectively the same moment, or at least from her perspective, like, it's all the time of the sock is like, she's looking at it from the outside. She's got her own perspective of time essentially, but it's not going to another level of time. I mean, let's not get into that. 
I mean, then there's also all these other aspects of spatial dimensions that we don't experience. But we don't need to worry about that. Although I will say that going into fourth density is essentially experiencing another of the spatial dimensions. Um, but hopefully my idea about how to picture time as all a moment that is got a form to it, it's got a shape to it. And that shape is being rewritten by source, by God. And we are all source and God, all souls in an interactive grand process that is eternally occurring on a fractal holographic basis is constantly shaping, creating and rewriting reality forever. I like the sound of that. Sounds right to me. Anyway, I'm going to go back to synchronicity. But uh, the, what I like about the doing this is that I get these inspirations. So I hopefully people like it. So I'm just going to do what I love, and people don't like it. They don't like it. They do. They do. You know. I mean, I, I want to do a service, but at the same time, like I would do what feels right to me in doing it because otherwise it's not resonating so it is resonating so yeah where was i But, it, but remarkably enough, it is not easy, so easy to understand synchronicity and time as spatial, for we cannot imagine any space in which future events are objectively present and could be experienced as such through a reduction of the spatial distance. Reducing the spatial distance along the sock. That would be re-knitting those two strands to be closer to each other, right? that could be bringing an event closer in time than it was previously, in the meta time, that is. Meta time, in my perspective, being from the subjective experience of a third, from external subjective experience, perhaps. So there's the person experiencing it well, it's all subjective, right? Like there's, there's the experience of it. It depends on what level you're looking at, right? If you're if you're involved in the events occurring, if you're entangled in them, then and if it were rewritten such that an event were written closer to you. For example, the awakening. If people started awakening faster than they would have, 
And that brought the new earth, the awakened fourth density earth, about quicker than the strand of new earth woven into the sock would by the old lady would be from the perspective of someone in the sock achieved through less time than it was previously to that change. However, meta time would be the time that she experiences as a creator the creator who, while not entangled in something, experiencing it, creates it, or at least observes it, that's meta time. Whereas entangled experience of it, where you don't see from the outside, is time. So that whether it's meta or not depends on whether you're entangled in it and experience it from outside it or not. Hopefully that makes sense. I, I have to make sense of it. I could, I need to make sense of it myself. So I had to just work through that. Yeah. Hopefully that metaphor works. But since, ex since experience has shown that under certain conditions, space and time can be reduced to almost zero, causality disappears along with them, since causality is bound up with the existence of space and time and physical changes, and consists essentially in the succession of cause and effect. For this reason, synchronistic phenomena cannot in principle be associated with any conceptions of causality. Hence, the interconnection of meaningfully coincident factors must necessarily be thought of as a causal. Although if you think of there being lots of interconnected strands of space and time connected in a fabric, a multidimensional fabric, perhaps it is causal in a sense, just not causal in the sense, the typical sense of, in which we think of causation. Here, for want of a demonstrable cause, we are all too likely to fall into the temptation of positing a transcendental one. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're doing, right? <laughs> but a cause can only be demonstrable, a demonstrable quantity. Well, okay, okay. He's working from a scientific paradigm. Let's cut Jung some slack here, all right? <laughs> A transcendental cause is a contradiction in terms because anything transcendental cannot be, by definition, be demonstrated. But does it need to be demonstrable or demonstrated to be? I mean, if you're going, if you're base, if you're going on empirical epistemology, yes. But that, well, you don't have to go in that epistemology. Or at least you don't need an epistemology that is exclusively empirical. If we don't want to risk the, hypoth the hypothesis of a causality, the only alternative is to explain the synchronistic phenomena as mere chance, which brings us into conflict with Ryan's ESP discoveries and other well-attested facts reported in the literature of parapsychology. Well, that is pretty 
hard hitting, I would say, to the in, to the skeptic, to, to to those who don't. It, it has pretty clear implications regarding causality, to say the least. Or else we are driven. Or else we are driven to the kind of reflections I described above, and must subject our basic principles of explanation to the criticism that space and time are constants in any given system only when they are measured without regard to psychic conditions. That is what regularly happens in scientific experiments. But when an event is observed without experimental restrictions, the observer can easily be influenced by an emotional state which alters space and time by contradiction. Every emotional state produces an alteration of consciousness, which Janet calls a baisement du niveau mental. That is to say that there is a certain narrowing of consciousness and a corresponding strengthening of the unconscious, which, particularly in the case of strong affects, is noticeable even to the layman. The tone of the unconscious is heightened, thereby creating a gradient for the unconscious to flow towards the conscious. The conscious then, then comes under the influence of unconscious instinctual impulses and contents. There are, as a rule, complexes whose ultimate basis is the archetype, the instinctive pattern. The unconscious also contains subliminal perceptions, as well as forgotten memory images that cannot be reproduced at the moment, and perhaps not at all. Among the subliminal contents, we must distinguish perceptions from what I would call inexplicable knowledge or immediate existence, whereas the perceptions can be re related to possible or probable sense of stimuli below the threshold of consciousness. Either the, the knowledge or immediate existence of unconscious images has no recognizable basis, or else we find recognizable causal connections with certain already existing and often archetypal contents. Hopefully I haven't gone too far as that. So, I mean, feel free to go back a little bit. Uh, there's nothing here. Um, because if I'm reading quicker than I can properly take in what I'm saying, then I'm probably reading too fast. These images, whether rooted in an already existing basis or not, stand up in an analogous or equivalent, i.e. meaningful, relationship to objective occurrences which have no recognizable or even, recon or even conceivable causal relationship with them. How could an event remote in space and time produce a corresponding psychic image when the transmission of energy necessary for this is not even thinkable? However incomprehensible it may appear, we are finally compelled to assume that there may, that there is in the unconscious something like an a priori knowledge or immediate presence of events which lacks any causal basis. At any rate, our conception of causality is incapable of explaining the facts. Wow. What do you think of that? 
In view of this complicated situation, it may be worthwhile to recapitulate the argument discussed above. And this can be best done with the aid of our examples. In Ryan's experiment, I made the assumption, owing to the tense expectation or emotional state of the subject, an already existing correct but unconscious image of the result enables, enables his conscious mind to score a more than chance number of hits. The scarab dream is a conscious representation arising from an unconscious, already existing image of the situation that will occur on the following day, i.e. the recounting of the dream and the appearance of the rose chafer. The, the wife of the patient who died had the unconscious knowledge of the impending death. The flock of birds evoked the corresponding memory images and consequently her fear. Similarly, the almost simultaneous dream or the violent death of her friend arose from an already existing unknowledge, unconscious knowledge of it. In all of these cases, and others like them, there seemed to be an a priori, a priori causally in inexplicable knowledge of a situation which is at the same time unknowable. Synchronicity therefore consists of two factors. A, an unconscious image comes into the consciousness either directly, i.e. literally, or indirectly, symbolized or suggested, in the form of a dream, idea, or premonition. B, an objective situation coincides with this content. The one is as puzzling as the other. How does the unconscious image arise and how the coincidence? I understand only too well why people prefer to doubt the reality of these things. Here I will only pose the question. Later in the course of this study, I will try to give an answer. As regards to the role which effects play in the occurrence of synchronistic events, I should perhaps mention that this is by no means a new idea, but was already known to Avicenna and Albertus Magnus. Speaking of mag magic, Albertus Magnus writes. I discovered an instructive account of magic in Avicenna's Liber Sextus Naturalium, which says that a certain power, Virtus, that's footnote, to alter things indwells the human soul and subordinates the other things to her, particularly when she is swept into the great excess of love or hate or the like. Footnote. Okay, that's just Latin. Tell you what, does that sound anything like the law of attraction to you? Sounds like it to me. Now, Jung would have seen, known about that I mean, it's in this book, but he wouldn't necessarily have known it as the law of attraction, but he would have known that kind of concept. He would have not believed in it, it seems, since he seemed unwilling to, he seemed willing to believe in synchronicity, but not outright parapsychology or outright new age stuff or the like. However, the puzzle pieces are right here in his book. So what we can do is we can look at this and we see the pieces. Now, now maybe we're already inclined to believe in this stuff anyway, right? But there are other people who aren't and we, we, we can help people with regard to putting the puzzle pieces together in a way that is understandable. It, it doesn't 
make a scientific case necessarily, but it, at very least, it clarifies where we're coming from, such that at the very least, if they're open-minded enough, they can understand where we're coming from. This is why I think this is particularly valuable. In a sense, we see some, we can get some of the benefit of, in a sense, now, from our perspective, from what we know about new age ideas and law of one and all that, we can get more from Jung's insight or more, we can get more from Jung's insight than he got from his insight, at least consciously. Maybe unconsciously, he was, maybe, I mean, he was doing this for people, for others in the future. Maybe part of him, his soul and another level of things, knew that people would use his work as puzzle pieces to fit together with other things which he wasn't consciously aware of, but which his higher self or soul was aware of. When, therefore, the soul of a man falls into great excess of any passion, it can be proved by experiment that the excess binds him, binds things magically and alters them in the way it wants. I, I will clarify, this is Albertus Magnus writing, not Carl Jung. And for a long time, I did not believe it. But after I'd read the negromantic books and other of the kind of signs and magic, I found that the emotionality um, affectio, um, yeah, the, the emotionality of the human soul is the chief cause of these things, whether because on account of her great emotions, she alters her body substance and the other things towards which she strives, or because on account of her dignity, the other lower things that are subject to her, or because the appropriate hour or astrological situation or another power coincides with so inordinate an emotion that we, in consequence, believe that this power does, what this power does is then by the soul, whoever would learn the secret of doing and undoing, these things must know that everyone can influence everything magically if he falls into a great excess and he must do it at the hour when the excess befalls him and operate with the, the things which the soul prescribes. Well, the soul is then so desirous of the matter, she would accomplish that of her own accord. She seizes the more significant, the better astrological hour, which also rules over the things suited to that matter. Thus, it is the soul who de desires a thing more intensely, who makes such thing, who makes things more effective and more like what comes forth. Such is the matter, the manner of production, with everything the soul intensely desires. Everything she does with that aim in view possesses motor power and efficiency for what the soul desires. Um, footnote, uh, the reference to that is De Mirabilius, no, Mirab Mirabilibus, Mirabilibus Mundi in Cunabulum in the Zurich Zentral, Zentral Bibliot 
Beck undated. There was a Cologne printing dated 1485. Oh, that's earlier than I expected. Yeah, I'm sorry about my pronunciation, but that's my best attempt at a reference of that. But ultimately, it's in page 46 of our synchronicity, the unknown causal connecting principle. So that sounds a lot like the law of attraction. That very much fits in the new age category, very much fits in with the law, with the law one um, and hermetic principles and the import tablets. Yeah, and to those will scoff that it's just like, they're all one, it's just like a bunch of hippies on drugs or something like that. Like, these ideas preceded the law of one. I mean, alternatively, people might scoff at it and dismiss it as like, essentially fraudulent or copied from that. And also I would disagree with that, it's just aligning. The fact that this is in a work of Jung's, even if Jung doesn't believe in what Albertus Magnus was saying, it's of quite significance that, um, well, we read that. I mean, that, that or when you read it, but you know, I feel like that is really interesting to see in this book. And yeah, I really think it answered this episode anyway. This text clearly, this text, this text shows clearly that synchronistic magical happenings are regarded as being dependent on after, on effects. Naturally, Albertus Magnus, in accordance with the spirit of his age, explains this by postulating a magical faculty in the soul, without considering that the psychic process itself is just as much arranged as the coinciding representation which anticipates the external physical process. This representation originates in the unconscious and therefore belongs to those cogitonias quae sunt a nobis independentes, uh, whatever, which in the opinion of Arnold Gurlinx, Gurlinxed, are prompted by God and does not spring from our own thinking. But if you account for panpsychism, pantheism, we realize that those are one and the same. Gotha thinks of synchronistic events, synchronistic events in the same magical way. Thus, he says, in this converse, in his conversations with Eckerman, we have certain electric and magnetic powers within us, and ourselves exercise an attractive and repellent, repelling force, according as we come into touch with something like or unlike. I mean, that sounds like a law of attraction. Sounds like mentalism. And if you want the footnote for that, Eckerman's Conversations with Gotha, translated by R. O. Moon, London, 1951, PP 514, F. modified, whatever that means. Oh, uh, 
Oh, I mean, there's something else I missed, Dave. Uh, I don't know if it's all. There's something else from um, from Gulinkst or whatever. Uh, Metaphysica Vera, part three, Secunda Scienta, in Opera Philosophica. Uh, I can't bother to give the rest of the information. Uh, you probably want to hear me more reading this out. After these general considerations, let us return to the problem of the empirical basis of synchronicity. The main difficulty here is to find an empirical material from which we can draw reasonably certain conclusions. And unfortunately, this difficulty is not an easy one to solve. The experiences in question are not ready, at, ready to hand. We must therefore look to, in the obscurest corners and summon up courage to shock the prejudices of our age if we want to broaden the basis of our understanding of nature. Well, absolutely. When Galileo discovered the moons of Jupiter with his telescope, he immediately came into head-on collision with the prejudices of his learned, contemporary, learned contemporaries. Nobody knew what a telescope was and what it could do. Never before had anyone talked of the moons of Jupiter. Naturally, every age thinks that all ages before it were prejudiced, and today we think this more than ever, and are just as wrong as all previous ages that thought so. How often have we not seen the truth condemned. It is, a sad, it is sad, but unfortunately true that man learns nothing from history. Well, until the Great Awakening, but yeah. This melancholy fact will present us with the great difficulties as soon as we set about collecting empirical material that would throw a little light on this dark subject, for we shall be quite certain to find it where all the authorities have assured us that nothing is to be found. And I'm sure the authorities have a vested interest in making sure of that. Reports of remarkable isolated cases, however, well authenticated, are unprofitable and lead at most to their reporter being regarded as a credulous person. A credulous person. Even the careful re-recording and verification of a large number of such cases, as in the work of Gurney, Myers and Podmore, footnote, whatever that is, have made, a great, have made next to no impression on the scientific world. The great majority of professional psychologists and psychiatrists seem to be completely ignorant of these researches. That was slightly a passive-aggressive of you, wasn't it? <laughs> Recently, Pascal Jordan has put up an excellent case for the scientific investigation of spatial clairvoyance. Positivistisch Bermerkungen über die Parasychischen Erstgenungen. Oh, wow, I'm butchering it. Uh, I hope you find this entertaining. Zentral blatt for psychotherapy Leipzig for 1936, number three. I would also draw attention to his Verundung und Komplementariat. Hamburg, 1947, concerning his relations to the microphysics and psychology of the unconscious. Yeah, I'm not sure about doing all these references. It, it really is a little tedious, but hopefully uh, you find it entertaining. Uh, the result of the ESP and 
PK experiments have provided a statistical basis for evaluating the phenomena of synchronicity and have at the same time pointed out the important part played by the psychic factor. This fact prompted me to ask whether or not to ask whether it would not be possible to find a method which would on one hand demonstrate the existence of synchronicity and on the other hand disclose psychic contents which would at least give us a clue to the nature of the psychic factor involved. When he says psychic he generally means it as relating to the psyche. Just thought I'd clarify. I asked myself in other words whether they would be not be a method which would yield measurable results and would at the same time give us insight into the psychic background of synchronicity. There are certain essential psychic conditions for synchronistic phenomena we have already seen from ASP experiments, although the latter are in the nature of the case restricted to the fact of coincidence and only stress its psychic background without illuminating it any further. I'd known for a long for a long time that there were intuitive or mantic methods which start with the psychic factor and take the existence of synchronicity as self-evident. I therefore turned my attention first of all to the intuitive technique for grasping the total situation which is so characteristic of China namely the I Ching or book of changes. Unlike the Greek trained Western mind, the Chinese mind does not aim at grasping details for their own sake, but at a view which sees the details part of the whole. Indeed, right? For obvious reasons, a cognitive operation of this kind is impossible to the unaided intellect. Judgment must therefore rely much more on the rational functions of consciousness that is on the sensation, on sensation, the sense de real and the real, I don't know, whatever. And intuition, perception by means of subliminal contents. The I Ching, which we can, which we can well call the experimental basis of the classical Chinese philosophy is one of the oldest known methods for grasping a situation as a whole and thus placing the details against a cosmic background, the interplay of yin and yang. So chaos and order, I would say. Yeah, I really want to look into that. The I Ching. I feel like that I'm illuminating. This grasping of the whole is obviously the aim of science as well, but it is a goal that necessarily lies very far off because science, whether possible, proceeds, whenever possible, proceeds experimentally and in all cases statistically. The experiment, however, consists in asking the definite question which excludes as far as possible anything disturbing and irrelevant. It, it makes conditions imposing them on nature and in this way forces her to give an answer to a question devised by man. I mean, it's kind of unfair on us to treat guy that way, right? She is prevented from answering out of the fullness of her possibilities, since these possibilities are restricted as far as practicable. Now, I don't think Jung literally meant Mother Earth nature being prevented or restricted in this way but perhaps 
she is. For this purpose, there is created in the laboratory a situation which is artificially restricted to the question and which compels nature to give an unequivocal answer, compels. The workings of nature in her unrestricted wholeness are completely excluded. If we want to know what these workings are, we need a method of inquiry which imposes the fewest possible conditions, or if possible, no conditions at all, then leaves nature to answer out of the fullness. In the laboratory designed environment, the known and established procedure forms a stable factor in the statistical population and comparison of the results. In the intuitive or mantic experiment with the whole, on the other hand, there is no need of any question which imposes conditions and restricts the wholeness of the natural process. It is given in every possible chance to express itself. In the I Ching, the coins fall just as happens to suit them. An unknown question is followed by an unintelligible answer. Thus, the conditions for a total reaction are obviously ideal. The disadvantage, however, leaps to the eye. In contrast to the scientific experiment, one does not know what has happened. All right, footnote. If the experiment is made with the traditional yarrow stalks, the division of 49 stalks represents this chance factor. In his introduction to the I Ching, 1P6, Professor Jung writes, I personified the book in a sense, asking its judgment on being asked by one of the editors to explain this apparent contradiction. Professor Jung replied, when I use the I Ching in the case of a human individual, I ask no definite question. This is my personal choice. In China, they ask a specific question. In my preface, I followed this old method. Why should this be a contradiction? In my preface, there was no question of a human individual. One does not know what has happened. To overcome this drawback, two Chinese sages, King Wen and the Duke of Chao, in the 12th century before our era, basing themselves on the hypothesis of unity of nature, sought to explain the simultaneous occurrence of a psychic state with a process, with a, with a physical process as an equivalence of meaning. In other words, they supposed that the same living reality was expressing itself in the psychic state as in the physical. But in order to verify such a hypothesis, some limiting condition was needed in this apparently limitless experiment, namely a definite form of physical procedure, a method or technique which forced nature to answer in even unknown numbers. These, as representatives of yin and yang, are found both in the unconscious and in nature, in the characteristic form of opposites, as the mother and father of everything that happens. And they therefore form the tertium comparationis between the psychic inner world and the physical outer world. Okay, that's pretty clever, because it manages to tap into the masculine aspect, masculine energy and Male, feminine energy, which corresponds to yin yang, and it does allow it allows law of attraction and mentalism and Gaia and what have you and 
source and allows it to do its thing. Allows nature to do its thing. Thus the two sages devised a method by which an inner state could be represented as an outer one and vice versa. So above as below, so below, so above. Well, I guess it goes the other way around, but yeah, I mean, it goes both ways. But it also means so within, so without, so without, so within. Because in and out and up and down are pretty much the same thing. I am the holographic nature reality. Yeah. Um, this fits right in with that. This naturally presupposes an intuitive knowledge of the meaning of the of each oracle figure. The I Ching therefore consists of a collection of 64 interpretations by which the meaning of the possible yin-yang combinations is worked out. The interpretations formulate the inner unconscious knowledge that corresponds to the state of consciousness at the moment. And this psychological situation coincides with the chance results of the method. That is, with the odd and even numbers resulting from the fall of coins or from the division of Yarrow stalks, of the Yarrow stalks. The method, like all divinatory or intuitive techniques, is based on an a-causal or synchronistic connective principle. Um, footnote for this. I first used this term in my memorial address for Richard Wilhelm, delivered May 10th, 1930 in Munich. The address later appeared as an appendix in the Secret of the Golden Flower, London and New York, 1931, where I said, the science of the I Ching is not based on the causality principle, but on the principle hitherto named because not met with among us, which I've tentatively called the synchronistic principle. Page 142 of that book. And he's also referencing the I Ching. Um, yeah. In practice, as any unprejudiced person will admit, many obvious cases of synchronicity occurred during the experiment, which could be rationally and somewhat arbitrarily explained away as mere projections. But if one assumes that they, they really are as they appear to be, then they can only be meaningful coincidences for which, as far as we know, there is no causal explanation. The method consists either in dividing the 49 yarrow stalks into two heaps at random and counting off the heaps by threes and fives, or in throwing three coins six times, each line of the hexagram being determined by the value of obverse, obverse and reverse, heads three, tails two. The experiment is based on the triadic principle, two tri trigrams trigrams and contain 64 mutations, each, according, each corresponding to a psychic situation. These are discussed at length in the text and appended commentaries. There is also a Western method of the ancient or of a very ancient origin. Mentioned by Isidore of Seville in his Liber Etymologum 8 and more stuff that I'm not gonna read out. 
um, which is based on the general, the same general principle as the I Ching. The only difference being that in the West, this principle is not triadic, but significantly enough tetradic. And the result is not a hexagram built up of the yin yang lines, but 16 figures composed of odd and even numbers. 12 of them are arranged according to certain rules in the astrological houses. Still, that would also be interesting to have a look at. The experiment is based on four by four lines consisting of a random number of points, which the questioner marks in the sand or on a paper from left to right. Grains of corn or dice can also be used. In true occidental fashion, the, co the combination of these factors goes into considerably more detail than the I Ching. Here too, there are a, any amount of meaningful coincidences, but they are as a rule harder to understand and therefore less obvious than, than in the latter. In the Western method, which is known since the 13th century as the Ars Geomantica or the art of punctuation, the best account is found in the Robert Flood, 1574 to 1637. The Arta Diomantica, C.F. Thorndike, A History of Magic and Experimental Science, to New York, 1929, page 110. In and enjoyed a widespread vogue, there are no real commentaries since the use of only mantic and never philosophical like that of the I Ching. Though the results of both procedures point in the desired direction, they do not provide any basis for statistical evaluation. I have therefore looked around for another intuitive technique and I've hit upon astrology, which at the very least in its modern form claims to give more or less a total picture of the individual's character. It, there is no lack of commentaries here. Indeed, we find a bewildering profusion of them, a sure sign that interpretation is neither simple nor certain. The meaningful coincidence we are looking for is immediately apparent in astrology, since the astrom astronomical data are said by astrologers to correspond to individual traits of character. And from the remotest times, the various planets, houses, zodiacal signs and aspects have all had meanings that serve as a basis for a character study or for an interpretation of a given situation. Marriage can thus be based on, uh, I need to read out what those symbols are. Okay, how do I do that? Okay, one, uh, the first symbol here is a dot with a circle around it. Then there's a, a small circle with um, a line going diagonal up and right from it. And then there's a, a right facing crescent moon. So the, yeah. Right facing is in the bit you can't see is on the right. Uh, the, the horns of, of it go to the right. That's what I mean by right facing. In the horoscopes of the partners or particularly lucky or unlucky fate may be based on, okay, it's a symbol that looks like a bit like an H, but squiggly in Greek. Then there's like a, a diagonally, a diagonal up, like an eight, but not facing up directly, but slightly to the right. Um, 
a symbol that looks like a sideways H, um, kind of, and the, the moon again, or an unusual amount of aspects, or again, on an old astrological maxim like Mars in medio curuli sampa significant, significant chasm abulto, as in the horoscope of Emperor Wilhelm II. It is also possible to object that the result does not agree with our psychological knowledge of the situational character in question and is difficult to refute and it's difficult to refute the assertion that knowledge of character is highly subjective affair because in the characterology there is no infallible or even reliable science that can in any way be measured or calculated any objection that is also raised against graphology an objection that is also raised against graphology, although in practice it enjoys widespread recognition. This criticism, together with the absence of reliable criteria for determining traits of character, makes the meaningful coincidence of horoscope structure and individual character seems inapplicable for the purpose here under discussion. If, therefore, we want astrology to tell us anything about the a-causal connection of events, we must discard this uncertain diagnosis of character and put in its place an absolutely certain and undubitable fact. Marriage is such a fact. Uh, footnote. Other obvious facts would be murder and suicide. Statistics are found in Herbert von Klocker, Klocker Astrology als Wissenschaft, Leipzig, 19. I'm not going to do any more of those photos. Sorry, sorry, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. If you want evidence, you can look this up. Um, I'll tell you what, I will just read out every page I'm on uh, as I turn onto it, all right? And you can look it up yourself. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is too much. Okay. Okay, I'll just finish page 54, page 55. Since antiquity, the main traditional astrological and alchemical correspondence to marriage has been the con coni coniunctual solace. That's, um, that symbol is a dot with a circle around it, et lunae, well, the moon, the crescent moon, that is, the conjunct geo lunae et lunae and the connection and the conjunction of the moon with the ascendant uh and the footnote it says that it dates this view dates back to plotomy um and a whole bunch more stuff there are others but these do not come within the traditional mainstream. The ascendant-descendant axis was introduced into the tradition because it has long been regarded as having a particularly important influence on the personality. In my case, um, I don't know for sure, but I think when I was born, Mercury in the ascendant, which affects me. Uh, uh, apparently, I, I don't know. Someone I know, I, I kind of got a reading from someone I know once, but it wasn't that detailed. As I shall refer later in the conjunction and opposite of Mars, 
and Venus, we say here that the, these are related to marriage only because the conjunction or opposites of these two planets point to a love relationship and may not produce a marriage. So far as my experiment is concerned, we have to investigate the coincident aspects. Uh, that's sun, moon, 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 and moon, ASC, in the horoscopes of the married pairs in relation to those of the unmarried pairs. It will further be of interest to compare the relation of the above aspects to those of the aspects which belong only in minor degree to the main traditional stream. No belief in astrology is needed to carry out such an investigation. Only the birth dates, the astronomical almanac, and the table of logarithms for working out the horoscope. All right. That's the key thing to keep in mind, even if you're a little bit confused. That he, what Carl Jung did is I'll repeat, he looked at the birth dates, an astronomical almanac, that is that shows facts about astrology at different dates. I think, I'm, get, I'm guessing that. I could look that up, but I'm not going to bother. And a table of logarithms for working out the horoscope. All right, so the hard and fast facts right you can respect him for what he did because he was trying to be scientific about it i mean a lot of people wouldn't have even dared to try so you have to give young credit for that and he was working within a scientific paradigm and working at a time which now is also such a time generally where it's hard to kind of go against the materialistic paradigm I mean. As the above three mantic procedures show, the method best adapted to the nature of chance is a numerical method. Since the remotest time time, since the remotest times, men have used numbers to express meaningful coincidences, that is, those that can be interpreted. There is something peculiar, one might even say mysterious, about numbers. They have never been entirely robbed of their numinous aura. If so, a textbook of mathematics tells us a group of objects is derived of every single one of its properties or characteristics. There still remains at the end its number, which seems to indicate that number is something irreducible. I am not concerned here with the logic of this mathematical argument, but only with its psychology. The sequence of natural numbers turns out to be unexpectedly more than a stringing, mere stringing together of identical units. It contains the whole of mathematics and everything yet to be discovered in the field, this field. Numbers, number therefore is in one sense an unpredictable entity. Although I would not care to undertake to say anything illuminating about the inner relation between two such apparently inconsumable things such as number and synchronicity, I cannot refrain from pointing out that not only were they always brought into connection with one another, but that both possess numinosity and mystery in their common characteristics. 
So on some level, people have always been aware of this. Number has invariably been used to describe some numinous object and all numbers from one to nine are sacred, just as 10, 12, 13, 14, 28, 32, and 40 have, have special significance. One to nine, especially significant, right? Because um, they're like the root numbers and everything else is based on them. They're the fundamental integers, right? They, I can't remember the actual precise terms, but. And often with our numerology, from what I know, the significance is with numbers bigger than nine is generally made up of the integers that make up them. So for example, 10 is 11, for example, wait, 12, for example, is a one and a two. And you look at the meaning of one, you look at the meaning of two, and you kind of combine them together. Um, 19 would, right, 29, for example, 39, it would be, you know, three and nine. 326 would be three. 26, um, oh, whatever, I have lost track. I'm getting into too much detail, but you get the point. The most elementary quality about an object is whether it is one or many. Number helps more than anything else to bring order to the chaos of appearances. It is predestined instrument for creating order, for apprehending an already existing, but still unknown regular arrangement or Orderly, orderedness. It may well be the most primitive element of order in the human mind. Seeing that the numbers one to four occur with the greatest frequency and of the widest incidence. In other words, primitive patterns of order are mostly triads or tetrads. That numbers have an archetypal foundation is not, by the way, a conjuncture of a conjecture of mine, but of certain mathematicians, as we shall see in due course. Hence, it is not such an audacious conclusion after all, if we define number psychologically as an archetype of order, which has become conscious. Interesting. Remarkably enough, the psychic pictures of wholeness which are spontaneously produced by the unconscious, the symbols of the self in mandala form, are also have mathematical structure. Interesting, so he's saying that numbers are a conscious representation of an archetype in the collective unconscious that manifests, in a sense, possessing us. So mathematicians are possessed by numbers. I, I, no, he didn't say that, I, I'm just sort of interpreting. Uh, so, yeah. Remarkably enough, the psychic pictures of wholeness, which are, oh, I always said that. They are, as a rule, quaternities or their multiples. And there's a reference there, but it's not that. These structures are not only express order, but they also create it. That is why they generally appear in times of psychic disorientation in order to compensate for chaotic state or as formulations of numinous experiences. 
it must be emphasized yet again that these that they are not inventions of the conscious mind but are spontaneous products of the unconscious as has been sufficiently shown by experience naturally the conscious mind can imitate these patterns of order but such imitations do not prove that the originals are conscious inventions. From this, it follows irrefutably that the unconscious uses number as an ordering factor. This is important, right? Because um, numbers tell us about the psychology and the unconscious of someone. I'm passing the collective unconscious, but I'm not sure. And he's statistically investigating that so we can discern things about the unconscious from the statistical facts he's investigating that's significant it is generally believed that numbers were invented or thought out by man and are therefore nothing but a concepts or quantities containing nothing that was not previously put into them by human intellect. But it is equally possible that numbers were found or discovered. In that case, they are not only concepts, but are something more autonomous entities which somehow contain more than just quantities. Unlike concepts, they are not based, they're based not on psychic assumption, but on the quality of being themselves, on that soness that cannot be expressed by an intellectual concept. Under these conditions, they might easily be endowed with qualities that have still be that have still to be discovered. I must confess that I incline to the view that numbers were as much found as invented, and that in consequence they possess a relative autonomy analogous to that of the archetypes. They would then have in common with the latter, the quality of being pre-existent to the consciousness, pre-existent to consciousness, and hence, on occasion of conditioning, it rather being, and hence, on occasion of conditioning it, rather than being conditioned by it. The archetypes, too, as a priori ideal forms, are as much found as invented, as they are discovered in as much as one did not know about their unconscious autonomous existence and invented in as much as their presence was inferred from analogous conceptual structures. Accordingly, it would seem that natural numbers have an archetypal character. If that is so, then not only would certain numbers and combinations of numbers have a relation to and, in, and an effect on certain archetypes, but the reverse would also be true. The first case, so what the reverse would be, the archetypal, archetypes have effect on numbers. And numbers have effect on archetypes. The first case is equivalent to number magic. But the second is equivalent to inquiring whether numbers, in conjunction with the combination of archetypes found in astrology, would show a tendency to behave in a special way. And he's scientifically investigating this. Isn't that fantastic? Right? I like that. I, I really like this. So we're at the end of chapter one, but that doesn't mean I'm going to finish here. I don't know how long I've gone for. Um, 
much longer want to go. I I feel like I want to at least go into the, the beginning of this. But I haven't gone on, gone on for quite a while, so. Yeah, I can do a part two or something. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, yeah. Reading this again is actually worth it as well, because um, it... It was quite illuminating for me at the time when I read it, which was actually about a year ago. Slightly over a year ago, but yeah. Um, but um, reading this, reading this again at this time, given the things I've been getting into more so and the The podcast I'm doing, it it refreshes my memory of the puzzle pieces and this connection and the connection with each other as a whole, right? And I like that I can introduce you guys to this. So, yeah, how far through the book am I now? Mm, more than a third, but less than a half. So like three fits or something. No, wait. Whatever, I can't bother to work out the details. Yeah, so hopefully you enjoyed that.